Our church um, has paid pretty close attention to Jesus, um, and we've noticed that um, the church, like ours, has a purpose. And the purpose of the church is to help make Jesus' name famous. And um, now we don't take the primary responsibility for that because the Holy Spirit's role is to elevate, point to, kind of like draw our hearts to Jesus. So we don't take primary responsibility for that. But we participate in how God has invited us in to help make Jesus famous. What does that mean? To help people esteem, affirm, and have affection for Jesus more. Kind of get our hearts' attention and attract our hearts, and eventually win over our hearts. So that's our role as a church body, not just ours, but all of the local churches, to help make Jesus' name famous. Um, And one of the ways that Jesus has become famous is in the Gospels, you read about His personal encounters with people. And in these personal encounters with people, you see what it is that makes Jesus who He is. And so... One of the most famous encounters that Jesus had was with someone referred to as the woman at the well. And we learn a lot about Jesus uh, in the way that He functions here basically with outsiders by His interaction with this woman at the well, and we see how He um, treats an outsider. And in John chapter 4, He describes what many of us would understand to be kind of a typical, prototypical sinner. Everything about her and her life, everything about her and her reputation would um, easily fit into our category as someone that we would consider someone that the world would, would, would um, refer to as a sinner when they think of that category. Um, so, before we get too far, I want to ask you to do something. And that is, if you were to hear and listen today to who Jesus is and what He says with a humility, with a tenderheartedness, with a receptivity, it's very possible that what you experience with Jesus today will change your life in the same way that it changes the Samaritan woman's life. It's very possible. If you are open um, to the words, to the um, ideas and the person of Jesus that we're going to encounter here in John chapter 4, it's possible that it could drastically change your life. And it's very true that my words won't change your life, but the Word of God that is kind of comes alive in your heart could bring transformation today. If you embrace this, if you embrace this, listen, it could save you. If you're young, it could save you from a lifetime of heartache. Isn't that, I mean, it's pretty wild to think that God might put us together in a space, whether you're watching in from the live stream, welcome everybody, or if you're here in person, it's amazing that God would arrange to put us in a space to hear from Him something that could help prevent a lifetime of heartache. Now, let me me ask you this. Be honest with you. How many of you, when you look back at your, the days of your, when you were young, how many of you discovered when you look back that you were the kind of person who learned, you had to learn the hard way? Where are you? You just had to experience it, learn the hard way. Don't you feel, now the rest of you, don't you feel bad for them? Don't you? Learning the hard way. How many of you felt like when you think back on your youth, you didn't really learn the hard way because you were letting other people learn the hard way and you were like, ah, I'm making mental notes, don't do that. Where are my people that let other people learn the hard way? Very few of them, by the way, very few. 
most everybody <laughs> learns the hard way. But, so, if, if, it's also possible that what you hear today, God uses to help heal you from a lifetime of frustration and anger and bitterness and emptiness. And a lot of that just has to do with how, how receptive, how humble our hearts are. Can we hear it? And for some of you who've heard this, kind of this encounter that Jesus has with a Samaritan woman, my prayer is that you hear it in a fresh way today, that it's a refresh. It's not a rehash of the same old, same old story. Are you with me? Let's pray. Father, would you soften our hearts, help us hear. A lot going on in our lives, a lot going on in our church family schedule today, just a lot going on. We just pray that this time would be sacred. You would use it. You would dig deep into our hearts, help us see things that we've never seen before, help us experience things we've never experienced before. Ultimately, more importantly, may we see Jesus more clearly than we've ever seen Him. We trust You to help us do that. We receive it humbly. and We pray for healing and wholeness today. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's how it goes. Whoa, this screen's right on top of me now. I just noticed that. Well, delayed reaction. When I was younger, it would be a really quick reaction, but now it's like two seconds. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water. This is John chapter 4. And Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, right? We mentioned this last week. It was surprised. He's a Hebrew, Jew. She's a Samaritan. They are known sworn enemies. So she was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you, and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. So, um, Jesus is revealing something to her. He's telling her something that she doesn't know. He's revealing something life-changing to her, and He is revealing that His water satisfies from the inside. He says, if you get this water, if you let me provide this water for you, it becomes a spring of living water that kind of springs up to eternal life. It's not temporary. It doesn't leave you thirsty again in 24 hours. It's not a dead pool of standing water with bacteria and infection and disease in it that eventually contaminates you. It's a moving water that has all kinds of life in it. And once I give this to you, it brings life to your inner life. Your soul comes alive. It's deep. It's soul level. It is flowing, moving, and incredibly satisfying. And Jesus is offering this to her. He's explaining it to her. There's a contentment here with His water that doesn't depend on anything that's going on outside of her life, any of the circumstances that have brought her heartache. And so, we'll revisit a question I asked you last week. What would make you happy? What would make you happy? Um, what would really give you a satisfying life? What is that one thing 
And almost always when this question is asked, if you think of an answer, almost always that answer is something outside of us that happens to us, something that comes to us, someone, something that, that um, is happening around us. It's our circumstance. It's some good fortune. Whatever it is that makes you say it, if I have that, if I could just get there, or if I could just get that, I will know. Then I'll know how significant I am, how important I am, um, how valid I am. I know I'll have security if I, if I get it. That one thing that brings that, it's likely something that's going to come from outside of you when you answer that question. But here's what Jesus says. Jesus says there's nothing outside of you that can truly satisfy the thirst that is deep down inside of you. So what he's describing to this Samaritan woman is that there is a natural, normal, default thirst that is coming from within us. And that thirst isn't satisfied by something that comes from outside of us. And Jesus says, this thirst is something deep down inside of us. Now, to continue the metaphor even further, he also doesn't say, listen, I have a little bit of living water, just splash it on your face. Every morning you wake up, just give yourself a little splash. No, what he says is, I've got a thirst that that is going to go down deeper uh, I've, got a, I've got a water, a living water, that's going to go down deeper than your thirst. To quench that thirst, it can't just be a little sprinkle or a splash. It's got to come all the way down as a source. It's got to be rivers of living water that's flowing from underneath the thirst. Otherwise, it's not satisfying. It's temporary. And that's what people discover when they start a new life philosophy or a new religion or a new, uh, um, a new author and spiritual leader and they start following those people and they discover it's good for a while. The, 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 um, the new philosophy of life, when I turned over a new leaf, it, it lasted me a good 18 months. And then I find myself hitting a dead end or coming up short again or coming up empty. And here's what Jesus is saying. If it comes from outside of you, it's not going to satisfy you. Because there's something, there's a longing that's happening underneath the surface. And Jesus is saying, I can give it to you. I can put that in you. I can provide that for you. It comes from me. I can give you absolute, unimaginable satisfaction. All the way down in the core of your being, regardless of what's happening on the outside, regardless of how well or how bad the present circumstances are in your life. But this isn't easy. Because something gets in our way. I mentioned this last week. This is what happens. Most of us aren't able to recognize our soul thirst for what it is. We recognize something, but we misappropriate it or miscategorize it as something different. In other words, there's a longing inside of us that drives us, and what we kind of interpret as happening is this. Our anxiety is around pursuing our goals. We haven't quite gotten there yet. We haven't made what we want to make. We haven't been promoted where we want to promote it. We haven't landed in the circles that we wish we were landing in. We haven't necessarily achieve the dreams that we have. And as a result, we interpret that thirst as drive. If I only had it, if I just worked harder, if I just networked better, if I just approached this in a different way, I would have a shot at success. I would achieve my dreams. I would see my goals come to fruition. And therefore, that longing in our hearts ends up kind of becoming drive and hope. And Jesus is saying, Take the word of other people who've already achieved their dreams and hopes, and when they get there, what do they say? Meh. Empty. Empty. Uh, Didn't cut it. Um, Still longing on the inside. Still thirsty. Jesus reveals to the Samaritan woman something that we need to grasp. And here's what he says to her. 
And this is, this is so fun because this is this whole encounter. This is basically, the, this is where we get to the pinnacle of what Jesus is saying. If I'm not your only one thing in your life that you live for, you will discover that all the others will fail and enslave you. Whatever that one thing is that you tell yourself that you have to have it, and if I don't have it, there's nothing to live for, or I don't know what my purpose is, or I don't know why I'm here, or I don't know where I'm going, or I'm so lost and confused. Whatever that one thing is, Jesus is telling her, if He's not that one thing, you're going to discover that the other things, all the other things fail you once you achieve them, once you receive them, or they enslave you, they keep you enslaved to doing bigger, better, more to keep them filling you up. And Jesus is kind of offering that to her in a very, very subtle way. Anything that you think of that you say, you know what, this one thing, this is what I have to have, or I'm not sure I really have a reason to live. If, imagine this. Imagine you thinking to yourself, if I, if I could just have this, I'm living for this, and if I get it, I'll know why I'm here. I'll have a reason to live. If there is something other than Jesus that you, your heart is set on, Imagine if anything threatens that, imagine that you'd become inordinately scared and live in fear. If anything blocks that, you become inordinately angry. Also, if you fail to achieve it, you're never ever able to forgive yourself that you couldn't achieve it, that you failed, faltered, and flopped in whatever that thing is that you had to have. Also, if you do achieve it, you discover, like everybody, every, all the other A-listers and celebrities and famous people, you discover, I achieved it, and it turns out it's empty. It fails to deliver the fulfillment. Now, this is what I mean. If you're young here, and you determine if you're young, okay? You determine that. If you're young here, this is the kind of thing that will save you a lifetime of heartache, filling your life with the one thing that you have to have in order to be fulfilled, in order to kind of achieve significance and security and whatever else. And, and if you can latch on to this, that all those other things, even if you achieve them, leave you empty and you're still thirsty, you can find yourself with one thing that never fails you, one thing that always satisfies you, and that one thing is always the same thing, and it's Jesus. And you don't have to learn the hard way. Now, easier said than done. Some people are in serious biblical counseling for a long time to discover uh, how to get through all the heartache that has been caused by some of those pursuits. I even thought of this. When I saw the news this week, this tragedy happened, I saw this um, situation in Seoul, Korea. Did you see this? There was a uh, kind of a stampede and and uh, evidently over, I think it's 150 plus now people were walking through an alley and there was a parade and, and somebody... Uh, um, the crowd started to rush and run through this alley and it crushed and killed about 150 people. I discovered with uh, a little bit later, I was told that they were running to see a celebrity who was in the parade that they were afraid they were going to miss. And so, this, uh, um, the reason why uh, this report kind of made me think of what we were talking about today is because their celebrity worship led to a crushing death, right? Now, most of us aren't so hot on seeing a celebrity that we would get ourselves crushed to death, right? Most of us, that's probably true. 
But also most of us have something in our lives that we are pursuing, and we're not dying an instant crushing death, but we're pursuing it and so hard driving and so fixated on it and so committed to it. We're making so many sacrifices for it that while we're not dying an instant crushing death, we're dying a slow death full of fear and anxiety, emptiness, sometimes even bitterness and anger because it's getting, we're getting blocked from it. And so we're, we learn how painful it is to chase something or someone. But the exhaustion of dying the slow death, the emptiness of dying the slow death is very similar. It made me think of that when I read that. It couldn't be described better than this uh, writer. There's a writer. He's not a Christian. An author. Um, I'm not sure if anybody has ever heard of David Foster Wallace, but he writes about this idea. And basically, he writes about this idea that Jesus is teaching. Even though he doesn't say Jesus teaches this, he writes about it. And David Foster Wallace is an award-winning author. He is a best-selling postmodern novelist. He is someone who is on the top, the pinnacle of his, um, um, uh, uh, of his niche or his um, profession. He's at the top. He succeeds where very few people ever succeed. He's known around the world for pushing the boundaries on his storytelling. A few years before the end of his life, he gave a now-famous commencement speech. He's speaking at Kenyon College, and he gives this speech. He's not a Christian. And he gives this speech to a graduating class. Here's what he says. Everybody worships. Now, am I the only one who thinks this worship is kind of, It's a Christian word, right, for the most part? So already I'm like, ooh, this is going to be interesting. Non-Christian author writing about worshiping. I'm very curious to hear how he understands it. Here's what he says. The only choice we get is what to worship. That's fascinating. And I'm thinking to myself as I'm reading this, this guy must have had some kind of saving faith or some kind of saving experience. But he goes on. And he said, so, so get this. The only choice we get is what to worship. Here's what he says. The compelling reason... For maybe choosing, maybe some people choose some sort of God to worship. And he says, this is kind of a compelling reason. And some people choose one sort of God to worship. And maybe the reason is that pretty much anything else that you worship will eat you alive. I mean, that's a head scratch. Like, how does he know that? Is he peeking in our sermon notes? What's this man doing? So, he goes on. Listen to this. I'm going to read you a quote. He goes on and he says, If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap the real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Did you ever hear what Rockefeller said when they said to him decades ago, how much money is enough for you? Did you ever hear what he said? It's one more dollar. And you're like, ha, 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 that's really funny. Oh, you're not joking. You're not kidding. Right? It's never enough if that's, what you're, if that's what you're, uh, where you get meaning out of life. And then he says, it's the truth. Worship your own body. Worship your own beauty. Worship your own sexual allure. And you'll always feel ugly. When time and age start showing, you'll, be, you'll die a million deaths before your loved ones plant you in the ground. Horrifying experience if that's what you worship to age. And expensive to keep yourself looking young. <laughs> then he goes on. Worship power, and you will always end up feeling weak and afraid. 
And you'll need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the ins- look, he says, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. It's our default. A couple years after, this is, brace yourself. Brace yourself. A couple years after giving this speech, he ended his own life. And it just makes me wonder. I mean, does that come from his heart because something's eating him alive? And he's telling us it makes sense to pursue a God because all the other stuff that I've achieved and all the other stuff I wanted is just eating me alive. And here we are, God giving us insight, saying to our tender hearts, you don't have to do that. You don't have to chase it. You don't have to love it. You don't have to have a one thing that comes from outside of you. It drags you through the mud. It beats you up. It fails you. It eats you alive. And by the way, when you're praying for people who don't know Jesus and their life is hard right now and they're withered and they're, and they're uh, facing all kinds of heartache, keep in mind, when you're looking at them from the outside looking in, it's these things that are eating them up. And we pray for them and we love them and say, God, may they discover Jesus who is the one who provides living water that satisfies to eternity and for eternity and by eternity. And this non-religious man's parting words to us, they're pretty bone-chilling when he says, something will eat you alive, whatever it is, whatever that one thing is. Because even though you might never call it worship, you can be absolutely sure, he says, that you are worshiping something. You are seeking something. Now, here's how one pastor, theologian, author um, describes what Jesus is telling us. As Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, here's what... Here's what Timothy Keller says about this conversation with the Samaritan woman. And Jesus says to her, unless you're worshiping me, unless I'm the center of your life, unless you're trying to get your spiritual thirst quenched through me and not through these other things, unless you see that the solution must come inside rather than pass by outside, then whatever you worship will abandon you in the end. But we forget how thirsty we are. We stay busy. We have goals and dreams. We have... Certainly, we have things in our country that help us kind of focus on what our purpose is, and we raise families, and we build our own um, sometimes kingdoms of comfort and so on, and oftentimes we miss it because we believe we're going to fulfill our dreams and achieve our goals. So it's easy to walk by Jesus, but you know who it wasn't easy to walk by Jesus for? Do you know it's the Samaritan woman, Not, not hard to walk by her, not a lot going on for her. Not a lot of dream chasing going on for her. She immediately says to Jesus, so um, what is this living water? What a great question, right? He's like, I got this living water. Change your life forever. Next question, what's the living water? Like, where do I get it? Great question. And then she says, would you give it to me? And then Jesus says, this is kind of, this needs an explanation. So here's what Jesus says, go get your husband. Pastors don't get away with this kind of stuff, by the way. You can't do that. So um, he says, go get your husband. Here's what she says. She says to him, well, I don't have a husband. This is John chapter 4. And Jesus says, you're right. 
you don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth there. Now, Jesus went straight from seeking living water to her history with men. Anybody else would be like, dang, ouch, zing, ouch, yo, bruh, what's up? Is this zinger what it seems? Is he changing the subject? Is he, listen, this is so good. Is Jesus bringing up areas of hurt so that she feels guilty about herself? We know Jesus. That's not his style. That's not his thing. But what is he doing? What is he saying to her? She says, I'd like this living water. Where can I get it? And he says, this thing with men, this thing you've got with men. Does Jesus suddenly change the subject? He isn't changing the subject. He's nudging her into a hard truth. He's gently starting to say, let's talk about what has replaced this living water. Let's let's change the subject. It's here in this part of this encounter we see Jesus doing something that He always does. He loves her with the hidden truth. He brings up the hidden truth. And what is that hidden truth? If you want to understand the nature of this living water that I offer you, you need to first understand how you've been seeking it in your own life. If you first want to understand the nature of this living water, you first have to understand where you've been pursuing it and how you've been trying to fill it and get it and experience it yourself. You've been trying to get it, he says to the Samaritan woman, you've been trying to get it through men. Love, romance, beauty, attraction, desire, Your need for men is eating you alive. And it's leaving you with heartache. And this heartache will never stop. So, later in John chapter 4, you'll see that the Samaritan woman runs off. She goes into town and she tells everybody, you're not going to believe this. I met, I mean, literally the Messiah. I literally met this Messiah who told me that I could experience living water, change my life. You're not going to believe this. You've got to meet him. She invites everyone else to go meet him and says, I have found living water. I have found eternal life. But how could Jesus offer her that? How could Jesus offer her this soul-level satisfaction to meet her need from the inside? How could he do that? It's because of something very specific that I don't want you to miss. She found the living water because Jesus said, I thirst. Now, what does that mean? Because he was thirsty, it drew him to the well for water. How did Jesus get thirsty? He's fully man. Jesus came from heaven to earth and he took on this, he wrapped himself in in, um, incarnation, right? This He took on flesh and he experiences thirst. And he experiences the same thing that she experiences, physical, literal thirst in her soul. If Jesus wasn't fully man, there's a good question here. Would he ever have been at all thirsty? He, she'd not have found the living water if he wasn't fully man and experiencing thirst for himself. Jesus empties himself of his glory He descends into the world as a vulnerable human being, takes on flesh that needs food and water, 
and he's subject to become weary and thirsty. In other words, she found the living water because Jesus came alive in the flesh, sent from heaven to earth, and experienced this thirst of his own. But that's not the last time Jesus said, I'm thirsty. There's another time that he says that he's thirsty. And of course, some of you who know the Gospels and know this the way that this ends at Jesus' execution, just before he dies on the cross, some of you know this, what does he say? I thirst. And it makes you wonder there, could this mean more than physical thirst? Is it possible that what Jesus is saying in part is, I'm experiencing the loss of a relationship, a connected, intimate relationship with the Father as I take on the sins of the world? And there's distance and darkness and separation. As I take on the punishment for the sins that the world deserves, I'm cut off from the Father. I'm cut off from the source of living water. I'm experiencing ultimate, torturous killing of eternal thirst, of which death by dehydration is just a small hint, just a small part. Uh, Timothy Keller observes how this is both paradoxical and also for us today astonishing. It's because Jesus Christ experienced cosmic thirst between Him and the Father on that cross that you and I can have our spiritual thirst satisfied. It's the only reason. Everything else you've filled your life with, is it leaving you empty? The things that have abandoned you and left you, has it left you angry and afraid? Abusive or controlling? And Jesus says that your inner spiritual thirst, it can be satisfied. You can find healing. You can find fulfillment. So what do we do now? I just wanted to mention a few things. What about reflecting? What about the first thing that you and I do together as we reflect and we say to ourselves, why did losing what I love hurt so much? I've told you the story of how I was shocked to discover I didn't make the varsity baseball team after being elected by my teammates and coaches on the junior varsity team as the most valuable player. Then through all kinds of goofy cross-ups, my junior year, the roster is red. My name's not on it. My friends walk up to me and go, dude, did you, what are you walking out of here for? I was like, did you hear my name? No. Well, I didn't either. So off we go. And you know what I discover? I discover for the next week or two, there's some surgery happening in my heart and saying, and this is what I hear the Holy Spirit saying to me, why does it hurt so much that you didn't make that team? Why does it hurt so much? And then God miraculously starts to fill my heart with things that are so much more gratifying and satisfying, like preparing for a summer of missions with the extra time, with the a lot of extra time that I had. Starting to ask myself, am I really going the baseball route or am I going to go church leadership route? And God's starting to urge me and nudge me now that he had gotten my hands loosed from my alternative career path. Some of you see me play softball and you're like, there's a lot of reasons why you shouldn't have perceived the baseball <laughs> path. Lots of reasons. Starting with being a dwarf size. You know, dwarfs are five, six and a half-ish, aren't they? Why did losing those things hurt so deep? How many of you remember your first heartache when you broke up with somebody? You remember that? How many of you look back and go, thank God, OMG, and now with social media, you can follow that person's life, and you're like, oh my God, thank you. 
sweet Jesus. <laughs> if I'd have ended up with that girl in kindergarten, I tell you what, what a nightmare. What a nightmare. Remember I told you about her? The only thing I remember about her to this day is her hairy arms. That's the only thing I remember. There's nothing wrong with hairy arms. Nothing wrong. But that's all I remember. Isn't that weird? Did God spare me from that? I don't know. I don't know. Nothing wrong with that. Promotion, right? I was passed over for, for a promotion. I was cut from the team. I lost my investment wealth. My rep reputation will never be the same. And it hurts. Here's my question. Why did losing what I love hurt so much? That's where we start. Why did that hurt so much? So many ways you could fill in the blank there. Second thing, what if we just refocused on what it is or who it is that I really need? What it is or who it is that I really need? Is my anxiety a restlessness a spiritual thirst deep under the surface? What if that's true? What if my anxiety and my restlessness is not ambition and, and dreaming for something? What if it's something that God's put there for me? You remember when Jesus said, what does it profit a man? What does it profit a man, woman? What does it profit? I mean, this is classic. If you're, if you're under 30, this is just gold. This is life-changing. What does it profit a man to pursue and gain what? The whole world at what cost? and forfeit his soul. I mean, Jesus is just laying it out there for us. And the question is, if it didn't satisfy everyone else when they achieved it, why would I think it's going to satisfy me? If you're under 40, under 30, grab a hold of this. Grab a hold of this. Unless that thirst is satisfied from the inside, all the other one things eventually abandon you, or they go on to crush you in the future. So that brings us to this. That brings us to the opportunity that we have to repent. Is it time to turn around? Is it time to make Jesus my one thing? And for a lot of you who have made Jesus your one thing, it's never the wrong time to say, is he my one thing now? Is he my one thing still? Or is my hopes and dreams and, 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 and my craving fulfillment coming for and from something else. So how do I do that? How do I do that? Either for the first time or again this time, here's how you do it. You focus on what Jesus did. You focus your heart and your mind on what he did, uh, why he did it. And eventually with that focus on who he is and, and, and uh, what Jesus did and why he did it, eventually it turns your heart away from the things that enslave you and it turns your heart toward him in worship. You become what you behold. You become what you behold. If you behold stuff and things and, you know, you eventually kind of become that. If you behold Jesus, you eventually become like Him. You start to adore Him and your affection grows from Him. Focus on living water, you find satisfaction. Focus on living your dreams, always thirsty, never ends, and it's crushing. Can we pray together? Father, we're grateful today for the special work that you did in the heart of this Samaritan woman. And as we read this, we find her a representation of how empty we can be when our one thing is someone or something else. 
We're grateful that you put this story of the Samaritan woman in the same, in the same, like right next to the religious professor who also was unfulfilled by keeping the rules, teaching the rules, living with devotion. The picture of religious piety. And then you tell him, that's not going to cut it. And then eventually, shortly after, you get to the Samaritan woman and you say, well, that's not going to cut it, but it's obvious to you. And church family just wondered today, if God's working in you, stirring you, I don't know what it is or who it is, not important that I do, but I just, I'd love for you, would you slip your hands up and say, God's at work in my heart. There's something, he, he is stirring in me, a newness, a, a, a thirst for him that I don't necessarily, that maybe is fresh. Would you slip your hand up? Who am I praying for? This doesn't mean you haven't tasted and seen the beauty and goodness of Jesus. It just means that you're, God's at work in you. He finishes these works. Father, we're grateful today that you're stirring our hearts and that you are helping us to identify this craving on the inside. Is not that one thing or other. It's you. And for those who are trying to start with Jesus, walk with Jesus, know Jesus, love Jesus, if they're having a struggle doing it, help them to have the courage to reach out to someone who might be able to help them. Help us lead our kids to do the same. Help us model it well. Help us adore Jesus today more than we adore anyone or anything that's going to happen to us this week or that we hope happens to us this week. Father, we trust you. We cherish the fact that you've shown us who Jesus is in this encounter. Indeed, he's famous around the world. May he always be famous in my own heart first. And we pray this together as a church family. We trust you together as a church family. And now we're going to sing this together as a church family. And we rejoice in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing along with us about this hope that Jesus is forever and ever. He is our hope and our joy.